New Zealand cricket. Let's talk about that from now till 3pm. It's our series on New Zealand sports history. And today we're looking at some modern New Zealand cricket greats. We weren't always a great cricketing nation. We played 100 tests. We won seven of them. But... In the glow of names like Brendan McCullum and Nathan Astle and Daniel Vittori, New Zealanders have just lived through one of the country's greatest eras of cricket, possibly the greatest era of cricket, according to award-winning journalist Dylan Cleaver. He's been covering the sports for almost three decades. He writes a sports newsletter called The Bounce, which would have to be compulsory uh, for anyone interested in sport in New Zealand. And he has a new book out, which is called Modern New Zealand Cricket Greats. 13 outstanding players. We're going to focus on three of them today. And Dylan Cleaver's with me in the studio. Kia ora. Kia ora, Jesse. Nice to see you. Yeah, nice to talk to you as well. Why was the time right for you to write this book? I was a little bit worried in the wake of New Zealand winning the World Test Championship in 2021 that there was almost no historical record of what I consider to be the greatest era of New Zealand cricket, certainly in my lifetime, uh, which is all I can you know, reliably comment on. Uh, but there were lots of books written about the 80s. I think Richard Hadley probably had about six or seven biographies himself. Martin Crowe had a few. There was a the book. The Crowe style, Rhythm and Swing. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, Hadley rides again yeah. at the double, Hadley at the double, yeah. Uh, yeah, Martin Crow Raw. Yeah, there were so many. And there was also a book called The Victorious 80s. And for me, it just, I felt like this era needed to be recorded. I just yeah. didn't quite know how to do it. And after talking with publisher Warren Adler, who's also a big cricket fan, we decided it was probably better to do it personality-driven mm-hmm. rather than a road to a World Test Championship or something slightly more traditional like that. Yeah. I wonder if one of the reasons we got so many biographies in the 80s is they were just trying to find a way to make a little bit of money. Yeah. And, and now, if you can go to the IPL for six weeks and earn hundreds of thousands of dollars, why bother sitting down for six months and writing a book? Yeah, I think there's probably a lot of truth in that, actually. Uh, yeah, a couple of weeks at the IPL kind of negates any reason to um, spend a lot of your time. You've got 13. I thought it was 12, but you've got a 13th man in there. Yes, I shoehorned a 13th. Yeah, fair um, enough, fair yeah. enough. And um, what were your boundaries here? You were choosing the 13 greatest players by what criteria? Yeah, that's a very good question. And there is an element of this which is arbitrary and kind of a flight of fancy. But I wanted to pick the 12 players who I thought had contributed the most to this, what I call the golden generation, the golden era of New Zealand cricket. For that, I needed a starting point. Mm-hmm. And the obvious starting point for me was kind of the year 2000. I was thinking, let's, let's reduce it to this century. And then the more and more I thought about it and the more the way the game has been shaped recently, it became obvious to me that there was a singular starting point for this great era, and it was Stephen Fleming. Hmm. As the leadership of Stephen Fleming in conjunction with the coaching of Steve Rickson and the management of the great educator, Sir John Graham. Mm-hmm. And that for me was point A. And obviously when you have a point A, you have people that fall on the wrong side of it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people have mentioned, why is Chris Kins not here? It's a very good question. And it could have been if I shifted the boundaries even further back because he is a you know, he was a game-changing all-rounder, but he debuted in 1989, and for me, I kind of wanted to distance it from that 80s era, which yeah. is another very good era. You took Zealand it from career. the debut. 
Yeah, so I decided they had to have played the bulk of their careers in the 2000s. Okay. So Fleming and Nathan Astle just made that cutoff. And if I'm being brutally honest, it was a cutoff designed to get Stephen Fleming as yeah, point Yeah, fair enough. And um, I suspect you and me are about the same generation. We probably think of the 80s and 90s as the modern era, but sadly... Yeah. It's probably more accurate to say since 2000, right? Yeah, I mean, I consider Shane Bond a very modern great. My son never saw him play. (laughs) (laughs) It's great. Um, I was talking to the great uh, cricket tragic uh, Matt Heath the other day, and he he reckons we've got a thing here in New Zealand where we are afraid to say that we've got a good team, Um, that you're afraid to admit that we might ever be favourites or that things might be going well. Do you think there's any of that in there? And and, and does that drive any of your decision to actually say, hey, this is a fantastic world-beating cricket team? Absolutely. Cricket's always occupied a very funny kind of corner of New Zealand's sporting cultural, I guess, um, Because we've been hurt hurt so many times. Yeah, we have been hurt. And it's always been secondary to rugby. I mean, there are historical reasons for that. Um, the first wave of um, British immigration to New Zealand occurred and the only time in history when rugby was a more popular sport than football. So rugby was football in New Zealand, mm. not soccer. Uh, and also New Zealand was settled. Uh, cricket was a very sort of classist, elitist game in England. Those weren't the kind of settlers we got to New Zealand. And also a largely rural population meant it was much easier to carve out 80 minutes of your time on a Saturday than it was cricket. So cricket Mm. was always something that we loved in summer for a short time and it was something that we were passionate about but we were never very good at it. I mean, in all reality, we were never very good at it until Sir Richard Hadley and Martin Crowe started winning us games in the 80s under the leadership of Jeff Howarth. Uh, but, But now we're very good at it but we still seem to be surprised when we do well at world events. How does this, the team of the modern era, compare to that team of the 1980s in terms of results? Well, it's better. In, in most respects, it's better. Certainly it is on the world events, in two World Cup finals, one-day finals in succession. One of them not lost, but um, not given the trophy in excruciating circumstances. Yeah. A World Test Championship that obviously didn't um, exist in the 80s. But that team was special in its own right. It had a couple of superstars and a bunch of semi-professional or amateur role players who lifted their game. This team's a this team's a bit different. It's got talent across the board. We've got talent that would have walked into the team in the eighties that doesn't really get a run nowadays in the test side. So to my mind, it's a better team, but that that sort of team in the 80s were groundbreaking in their own way and will always occupy, I think, quite a special place in the hearts of New Zealand cricket tragics, like myself and Matt Heath. <laughs> it's extraordinary, isn't it? If you look at our population of 5 million compared to, say, the population of India, I think the most populous country in the world right now, and you could hardly say that cricket was a minor sport over there. Probably every Indian person growing up wants to be in the national team, so everyone's having a go at it. And yet we give them a run for their money on a regular basis. Yeah, we do. What, what does that say? Billion people. Yeah. Well, I guess the 
the facetious argument to that is you only have 11 on field yeah. at any given time. So it doesn't matter if you come from <laughs> 1.4 billion or 5 million. But like the best yourself. 11 out of 1.4 billion have got to be better than the best 11 out of 5 million. You would assume so, yeah. And look, and again, um, we're playing against, I think, New Zealand cricket's revenue, annual revenue, is less than Surrey County Cricket Club's. Mm. So we are playing giants of the world game in England and India and Australia and standing up to them. Admittedly, our record against Australia is not fantastic. There's always been that big brother, little brother thing we can't seem to shake there. That If you're looking for a fly in the ointment Mm. of anointing this team, our greatest ever, (laughs) the record against Australia would be it because that team in the 80s did go over there and beat them in a test series, which... So we have not come close to doing yeah. um, recently. If you want to chip in, by the way, you can text us on 2101. I'm talking to Dylan Cleaver about the modern New Zealand cricket greats. Um, let's talk about Stephen Fleming then, your starting point, and why was it important for you to include him? Yeah, I just think everything that is um, growing from his leadership, I mean, New Zealand, it's not linear, New Zealand uh, weren't bad when Stephen Fleming took over and there was a steady incline to being great with another big dip once he left but I think some of the things he instilled which was confidence which was a pride and a, a steeliness uh, New Zealand weren't a particularly likeable team to play against under Fleming's leadership in a lot of ways they were very hard edged um, which he and Steve Rickson um, brought to the fold but what, what do you mean by that? Because we're known as the nice guys of New Zealand cricket now. Yeah, yeah, we weren't, so, we weren't so much back then. For Again, it's kind of a cultural thing, but New Zealand had played their cricket more like the English because we had a lot of cricketers that went over and played county cricket and they brought a lot of the, I guess, the, the social mores back from the county cricket circuit mm. and a, a more professional outlook but not necessarily life or death like Australians played. It was a working class game in Australia and they were harder and they were flintier and they, yeah. sledged, they sledged more. There was more gamesmanship. And I think uh, Fleming and Rickson looked to Australia a little bit and brought some of that harder edge to our cricket. We were far more combative on the field. And, uh, and Fleming's leadership I thought was exceptional and it was forged in some fairly trying circumstances uh, on a personal level. He you know, I wondered if his career was ever going to take off after he was one of three that were, what's the right word, busted for smoking pot on a tour of South Africa. That mm-hmm. hardened him. Then when he was captain, he was captain at a very young age, he was captain, he took the team to Pakistan and they um, had the horrific situation of a suicide bomber uh, operating just outside mm-hmm. their hotel and the kind of carnage they saw that day. So... He was he was a tough guy who made batting look very easy, and I think he just galvanised New Zealand cricket in a way that it was lacking during the nineties. Um, by the way, I'll include questions from listeners as they come through, even if they are sort of out of order. But Steve wants to know whether you agree with Stephen Fleming when he apparently said we should concentrate on white ball cricket, that's T twenties and one days, as we will never be a top test nation. It's hard to imagine Stephen saying that after we actually won the World Test Championship. Yeah, that was, I think there was an attitude like that uh, in the 2000s at one point. I know John Bracewell was a believer of that and he coached New Zealand for a while. He thought that New Zealand's resources were stretched too thin to be an effective 
well, not an effective test team. They're always an effective test team, but to be a top-notch test mm. team, uh, that's been debunked, obviously, by just some special cricketers coming through all at the at the same time. I'm not, I'm not as aware of Fleming espousing those views, but he would have played under Braceful for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, let's take a look at a big moment for Stephen Fleming, his first World Cup century. Can that be right? Yes, in 2003 against South Africa. There it is. He raises his right hand, the one that he got hit on just now. Yes, and what a happy man. His fourth one-day international, his first against South Africa, and his first in a World Cup confrontation. Well played, Stephen Fleming. He was pretty good in all forms of the game, Dylan Cleaver. He is a very good one-day player, very good one-day tactician. Uh, that was a sensational knock. I think he got 134 if I'm a, a capital runs out, forgive me. No, but at the Wanderers, you got it. Wanderers against a very good South African attack. It played a big role, actually, that victory in knocking South Africa out of their own World Cup. But on his day, he was a terrific player. Shane Warne always rated him as a batter really, really highly. Because mm, he could be pretty hard on people, Shane Warne. Talk to Mark Richardson about Shane Warne. Yeah, yeah, he didn't suffer fools on the pitch, yeah. um, and he could make a lot of batters look fools. <laughs> but, uh, actually, one of the more remarkable innings I saw was a. It, I think it might have been after the tsunami, and Sri Lanka had to leave uh, New Zealand early because it so badly affected their country. And a couple of games were arranged between a, a FICA World Eleven that was pulled together at New Zealand, and Shane Warne was bowling. I remember that, yeah, down at. Um, it might have been Jade Stadium then, yeah. it was the old Lancaster yeah. Park, and Stephen Fleming absolutely took him to bits. <laughs> it was one of the greatest things I've seen, and unfortunately it doesn't really exist in the records because oh, it, it's an yeah. unofficial game. That's uh, great. And being a tactical player, a, a tactical expert, Stephen Fleming, he's, he's actually prospered pretty well since giving up playing the sport. Yeah, he's still an incredible brain mm. in the game, and he saw something very early in T20 cricket. He saw... He played in that game at Eden Park against Australia, which might have been the first ever T20 international, and New Zealand treated it like a bit of a festival match. Yeah. They had the old beige get yeah, on, yeah, yeah. Teased, teased their hair up, yeah. advance. And he took he was part of the fun too, but sitting in the changing rooms afterwards, he, he and St- uh, Brendan McCullum kind of thought, hey, we just filled out Eden Park for a game of cricket. Mm. Australia took it really seriously, played really well. There's a proper game here, and I think he made it a mission then to wrap his mind around the possibilities of T20 cricket, and his coaching career has gone gangbusters with the Chennai Super Kings, four times winners of the IPL, which is by some distance the richest cricket tournament in the world. A couple of people have texted this, so I'll ask you the question. Did you consider putting any women in the book? Yeah, I did. I did, and uh, there was a number of questions I asked myself, actually, as I was compiling this list, and to me, I feel like it's its own project, uh, rather than kind of shoehorning or making an adjunct to this. Mm. I mean, the World Test Championship in 2021 was the lightning rod for this book, and so it would have felt like 
uh, an addendum rather than a project of its own. Um, a lot of these names are household names. I think Stephen Fleming, you could say, is a household name. Kane Williamson. Neil Wagner, maybe not quite so much. Certainly, if you know cricket, you'll know Neil Wagner. And, and you know, he's been involved in some of the great moments for the last few years. How special is he as a cricketer? And who is he for people who don't know him so well? Yeah, he's a remarkable cricketer. And it's his story that I'm really attracted to. He's a Africana kid, grew up in Pretoria, in North Pretoria was going nowhere in the South African cricket system. He was a good player, but he could not get a contract that paid him money. Like the only contracts he was being offered were ones where the, you only got paid for your coaching. You didn't get paid for your playing. Right. So he started to look further afield. He looked to England, and he was on the verge of signing a professional contract. Uh, he had two offers in county cricket. The most likely one he was going to sign was with Sussex, which is Brighton and Hove. And... Really on the eve of signing that, he got a call from his manager saying, hey, a guy called Mike Hesson, who's coach of Otago, is really keen on you. Are you interested? And the reason he was interested, um, Neil Wagner, is one of these curious little oddities that you get is that he had met Andrew Mertens. Um, <laughs> the school he went to, he got a scholarship because he he came from no money, Neil Wagner. So he got a scholarship to go to a a prestigious school in Pretoria, which was right across the ground from Loftus Firstfield, which is the the rugby ground. And the Crusaders were playing against the Blue Bulls, which is the local team. And Andrew Mertens had run a kicking drill one day for these school kids. Oh, cool. And then after the game, which Crusaders played the Blue Bulls, uh, all these kids that had been at this kicking drills were waiting kind of for autographs or to say hello to the players as they left the ground. All the Blue Bulls ignored them. But Andrew Mertens recognised them straight away, came up, chatted, signed stuff, made them huh. made them feel like a million bucks. And from that day on, Wagner was a kind of fan of New Zealand rugby, it's certainly a fan of the Crusaders, something he wasn't allowed to admit when he went to Otago to play cricket there. <laughs> and it just lodged in his mind that New Zealand was a place he, he liked. The difference a bit of kindness can make, eh? Exactly. Yeah. He also bowled to New Zealand in the Nets on their tour over there in 2008, he, which was when he was playing league cricket in New Zealand. He had a day bowling to England in the Nets. He had a day bowling to New Zealand in the Nets. The England players basically didn't say a word to him. The New Zealand players, again, were very embracing of him, very warm. That's Jacob like Oram spent a lot of time with him. Really? Yeah, and that was it. That was Forgot all about Jacob Oram. Was he a candidate for the book? Yeah, he was on the... Um, he was on the shortlist, mm-hmm. but yeah. How long was the shortlist? I think, I think I got about twenty names that were. I had a long list of probably about thirty names. It got down to about twenty. In the end, there were about fifteen that were really close. Um, Jake, I think got, I think I cut Jake between twenty and fifteen. <laughs> <laughs> Who Very was, good cricketer, mate. Who was the player that you were most devastated about having to leave out? Well, I did this in consultation with a couple of people in cricket that I've got a lot of respect for, and we all had 10 names that were exactly the same. Yeah. Uh, I also um, had consultation with statistician Francis Payne. Who, <laughs> there's not a number about New Zealand cricket he doesn't know. And he was fought very strongly for Mark Richardson to be included. And I, in the end, 
I didn't go with his opinion on that. So Mark is probably very unlucky huh. to miss out. Before we leave Neil Wagner, um, here's Australia's Matthew Wade talking about Neil's bowling style just a few years ago. But I've never seen a guy so accurate. Like, if you look at all the bouncy bowls, he very rarely missed, like, below your chest, which is an easy shot, um, or really high. He's, like, always in between that shoulder and the top of your peak kind of length. I don't think anyone in the game has bowled bounces like he bowled and been so consistent and not getting scored off and then also picking up wickets. Yeah. Do stats look good, Neil Wagner's? Yeah, and he's the only cricketer that's made this book who is test only. He's he's never played a white ball game for New Zealand, either T20 or one-day cricket. Tell you what, I mean, you can see it in his face when he's playing, right? It just goes bright red. In his heart and and emotion. I feel like he would be quite good at the one-day game. I love watching him play. That style of bowling, though, that he has perfected, uh, I think... um, Jared Kimber, who's a very fine cricket journalist, described him as the ultra-modernist because he's developed a style all of his own. Nobody before had bowled the angles that he does. Like, he bowls left arm around the wicket to a left-handed batter, which makes ostensibly makes no sense because <laughs> you, you can't really bowl them out that way. You can't get LBW. You're very unlikely to get them playing and missing outside of stump, and yeah. yet he's made it work because of, as Matt Wade described very well then that relentless short pitch bowling mm. and the accuracy of it and you just get tired of fending, <laughs> fending balls off your off your shoulder and your nipples yeah, all day yeah. eventually something cracks and 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 the other thing I love about Wagner is he plays in an era of New Zealand cricket where their emotions are very tamped down deliberately so at times and and maybe even to the point of um, parody at times. They're so humble and, and modest. He's the one guy that is not afraid to let everybody know how happy he is yeah. when he gets a wicket. And you, and you need a bit of that, I, that guttural roar. If you're still in the Bank of Basin Reserve, when he gets a wicket, you can hear it. So does that make Kane Williamson the opposite, the emotional yes, opposite? absolutely it does. Uh, but it's something that he talks about a lot and early in his career he found himself getting bulked down in his pursuit for numbers and as a result this game that he had absolutely adored ever since he was old enough to hold a bat was starting to not be as enjoyable Mm. for him. So the way he counted it was to enjoy the process and love batting rather than love loving scoring runs and I know that sounds like a little bit of a semantic argument but his joy was to be the best battery could not to be the highest scoring battery mm. he could and for that reason it seems like he can be really blase about milestones mm. and I'm sure he, I'm sure he loves getting hundreds but the hundred is a result of his love of batting rather than the pursuit of those landmarks interesting mental technique eh? It is, and he talked about it at length actually with the Oxford Union. After New Zealand were denied that World Cup, I refuse to say lost, yeah. were denied that World Cup in 2019, he was invited to speak at the Oxford Union, right. and he outlined that, and it was really quite amazing how, I mean, it's one thing to say it, but he very clearly lives it too. Like he refuses to get carried away by success, and that means that when he does have fellow patches, it it doesn't hurt as much mm. because he knows that the good times will come. How good is he? 
if you ask me, and this is a classic Barlina debate, of which there can be no winner, <laughs> that from a personal perspective, and this is going to be sacrilege to a lot of people, particularly those in the Christchurch area, I think he is past Sir Richard Hadley as our greatest ever cricketer. Wow. Because of that team-first element, because of his leadership, because of his refusal to get, um, you know, the cliche doesn't carry it away by triumph or disaster. Um, yeah, I, I really do. I mean, his numbers are it's outstanding, but his numbers are always compiled in pursuit of winning games for his team. Richard Hadley would be the first to admit that he played for numbers and the success of the team was a byproduct of him pursuing those personal goals. Martin Crowe was the, much the same as well. Kane Williamson has flipped that on its head. And they're both effective. Don't get me wrong, there was nothing wrong with Sir Richard Hadley's approach, but it was different. Is it, is it wrong for me to say that I probably got more joy watching Martin Crowe and Richard Hadley? Is that just the age I was at? I mean, Martin Crowe, I think, was maybe a more enjoyable batter to watch. Yeah, I think a lot of people would agree with you there. I, I take amazing joy watching Kane Williamson yeah, back, yeah. but I would acknowledge that he doesn't he doesn't fill the crease like Martin Crowe did. He doesn't have that kind of almost regal presence mm. that Martin Crowe did. When Martin Crowe went back, he went right back and hooked and cut ferociously. When he went forward, he went right forward and drove just so gracefully and, mm. and dramatically almost. Kane Williamson's far more smaller movements. He hits lots of check drives and flicks and works off his hips. Absolute run machine. And again, uh, I'm not saying one way is better than the other, but I definitely can understand why people would say they got more pure enjoyment or aesthetic pleasure from watching Crowbat as opposed to Williamson. Kane Williamson became New Zealand's leading test run scorer on the fourth day of the second test between the Black Caps and England at the Basin Reserve. Here's how it happened. It's going to run away for four. And there it is. Greatness has been talked about from a young age. And now Kane Williamson is top of New Zealand's test run scoring tree. Going past his long-time teammate Ross Taylor to a position many believed he would always get to. He has... And now is number one, appreciated by his teammates. Does he still have a few years ahead of him, a few runs ahead of him? I hope so. I do worry a little bit with, with Caden that he's played all three formats for New Zealand for a long time now. Uh, 13 years. Yeah, he's picking up niggly type injuries. The tennis elbow is effectively a a repetitive strain injury. Mm-hmm. Um, he's had a bit of bad luck too with the the knee going um, in his first game for Gujarat Titans. And okay. So enjoy him while we've got him. Yeah. Um, we're almost out of time. Many chance we can win this Cricket World Cup? There is. There is a chance, but they certainly need to lift their game from what they did last night against South Africa, and they need to beat Pakistan. You can find this book in the usual places? You can find it in the usual places, all good bookstores, yep. Ah, Pakistan. How many times have they fooled us in the cricket world? Exactly. Thanks so much. Dylan Cleaver, modern New Zealand cricket greats. This is our weekly series on New Zealand sports history.